0: Will you be able to help the front defeat the Order? Well, let's find out with Strife, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unit?
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 64 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host Joe. I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the Dawson Pre-Windows XP gaming era. So I guess this is the first uh first real quote unquote real episode of uh of 2015. Actually, did did the last show come out in 2015 or did that come out in 2014? I cannot remember. No, that was the December news. So that must have definitely let me, let me check here. Let's check on the website because I'm bad. December thirtieth. Okay, so the last episode was last year. So happy New Year, blockers! This is the first episode of 2015, and um, hope everyone had a good holiday. Hope everyone had a good New Year's. Everyone had fun. Didn't uh, didn't party too hard or anything, uh, anything like that. Uh, as for me, the beginning of the year has been it's been it's been nice, you know, so far. It's kind of mid January and um, getting into mid January at least. And, uh, you know, getting back into work and getting back into all that stuff, uh, trying to hit the ground running in, in 2015. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, my wife has been a little bit, uh, sick the past, uh, past week or so. And I'm actually home from work a little bit early cause I'm, I'm feeling a little bit under the weather. So, um, I don't think it's uh, reflected in my voice, but if it is, I apologize. But, uh, yeah, feeling a little run down, but, uh, that's why the show I was supposed to put out the show yesterday, but, uh. I just wasn't really feeling up to it. I took a, took it easy, had a nice, easy Sunday. So now it's Monday and, uh, and I'm, I'm getting, getting things done. It's been really, really cold, uh, as of late. So, uh, spending some time inside, uh, planning to get out to the ski hill in about two weeks. We, uh, we got a, a condo up a blue mountain. We're going to spend a weekend there. And then in February, I'm going to be off, off out West to, uh, to hit the big mountains and, uh, and, and do some turns down, uh down Fernie, so that should be pretty awesome but uh enough about that enough about the weather enough about the cold because we don't care about the cold because we're in our houses and it's warm so uh <laughs> let's get to let's get straight to emails so first email is from elima friend of the show elima uh, and she writes hello joe and fellow blockers for starters happy new year i really enjoyed these last podcasts so thank you for your continued hard work I was particularly interested by the Broken Sword podcast with your coverage of the series and, of course, Troll's opinion of the director's cut. I'm not a huge fan of the series, to be fair. In fact, I'd never even heard of the Broken Sword games until a few years ago when it was free in Apple's 12 Days of Christmas giveaway. It was free, so I figured, why the hell not? Tiny problem. I was living in France at the time and had to play the game in French, which isn't my usual modus operandi. To my relief, It turns out the French voices were pretty good, and maybe it's the director's cut, but I thought Nico was the main character, not George. Sorry, trolls. I don't know what they did with the Wii version, but the gameplay was pretty straightforward and intuitive on the iPhone. I really have no complaints about the game on the iPhone, aside from the outrageous French stereotypes. It was a pretty solid, fun adventure game, and I've been meaning to play the second installment in the series, which is sitting in my Steam library. Anyhow, thanks for the UMB podcast. I'm looking forward to this episode on Strife. Block on alima slash Emily. Well, thanks, Alima, and uh and yeah, I mean uh I suspect, I think I said it in the last show, uh I, I suspect the Wii version, you know, they kind of did what they do for Wii games and they tried to they tried to shove in some, you know, shake the controller Mario Party kind of uh Kind of games or kind of uh, mini mini games puzzle solving type games, you know, and it's kind of gimmicky, but uh you know the broken first broken sword game really really, really great, and uh you know, you guys should definitely uh definitely play it if um if you get the chance, like I said in uh, in that show next, we have an email from Martin, and he writes. When you announced you were doing Silent Service, it brought up memories of Silent Hunter 3 that uh, I would play with my dad. I didn't have much to say about uh, Silent Service, so I neglected to write an email about it. Then, when you mentioned the NES version of the game, I suddenly had a massive flashback. My dad was a huge Silent Service fan, it turns out, Uh, when... I talked to him about it. He showed me pictures of a uh, an old see-through table he made that he would play on. He had printed out an accurate map and attached it underneath the glass so he could make dry erase notes on it. He also played with two joystick attachments for the NES. He went on and on about how much he loved it. I wish I could get that spark in him again to play it with me now, but uh, we all but hey, we all grow up, right? I'd also like to announce that I'm moving back to Texas after my sister has uh, has recovered to no longer need my assistant. I have uh, a three-day road trip planned, so I'll need all the UMB cast I can get. Keep kicking ass, Martin. P.S. Star Wars Force Commander. Try that one off for size. Well, you know, Martin, uh, well, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I'm glad. If you guys remember, if you guys have been, you know, kind of longer, long-time listeners, Martin wrote in a while, a while back, must have been a year ago, that, uh, you know, his sister had been in an accident and, um, you know, she wasn't doing too great. And so it's, it's great to hear, that, uh, that she's recovered to the point where you can you can go back to Texas. So that's really, really, really great news. Uh, as for Silent Service, that's really cool. And I, I love stuff like that. You know, when people take games, I guess, as you want to call it, take games to the next level. You know, so you print out. Because, you know, you always see when you watch movies like Crimson Tide or stuff, they have these big map tables and they have these grease pencils and stuff. And they, like, draw. They make notes and they draw courses on them. And actually, when I got my pilot's license, that was actually a big, Net part of things you know navigation route planning you have maps that are laminated and you use kind of these dry erase uh dry erase markers to to map out your your routes and map out your drift lines and and all that stuff so that's really cool that he was able to kind of take the uh you know take the maps and and use them in in that in that in that kind of realistic way that's that's really cool i, I wish i had thought of something like that anyways uh star wars force commander yeah i i pfft, Yeah, on the list. You know me, uh, Star Wars game. I'm thinking of actually slotting in a Star Trek game because I haven't talked Trek in a very long time. So uh, that might come first before I do another Star Wars game, maybe a Final Unity or Bridge Commander or or something like that. Anyways, thanks a lot, Martin, and and congrats again. Next, an email from Ed, and he writes, Hi, Joe. I was listening to your news update uh, as well as seeing that you were covering a space trucking game. Glad to see you decided to give Elite Dangerous a go. I tried talking my son into buying Elite Dangerous with his holiday money instead of early access to Star Citizen. However, a few of his Skype buddies talked him into going with Star Citizen. Uh, He liked it once his friend helped him lower enough settings for it to play smoothly. I'm hoping he might show an interest in Elite, as I think Star Citizen is going to take a while. I, like yourself, agree with having mixed emotions on early access to betas. I used to religiously read the forums for Star Citizen, watch every Wingman's Hangar episode, which were very entertaining... However, I too played for a few hours, and I'm now waiting for the finished product with a bit less enthusiasm than I originally started with. I think after a uh, after a bit, I got hype overload. Uh, The fairly long load times, the excruciatingly long patch downloads at times, or patch download times, as well as the amount of time I spent trying to troubleshoot when the game, which is admittedly beta, refused to run uh, by searching their forums, wore me out a bit. I still have high hopes for the game, however at this point I'll be happier when it's finished and optimized on some level. Uh, I played EVE Online for two years, still never got to hang a combat against non-NPCs, mostly uh, mission, RAN, and uh, mined various asteroid belts. My wife used to call EVE the Other Woman. At one point I was part of a corp that had, wormhole, that had a wormhole base, and I found myself logging in at night and sitting scanning for the first 20 minutes of gameplay for new wormhole exits. I finally threw in the towel. I admit I had good times with the people. I'm at in game. Uh, the fact you could lose all your stuff if you got blown up put a real adrenaline rush when uh, when traveling around the more unsavory parts of Eve. As for space trucking games, uh, go. Uh, I did love Privateer maybe a little more than Elite. There's also Space Rogue. I love that game and uh, Frontier Elite 2. Does Star Wars X-wing Alliance count? I'm a bit of, also a bit of a flight sim nut. Any chance of reviewing Aces of the Pacific, Aces over Europe, or maybe Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe? Thanks, Ed. Well, as to your last question, um, I reviewed uh, in passing kind of Aces of the Pacific and Aces over Europe when I talked about Red Baron back in, well, whichever episode of Red Baron was in, just one of the early episodes. And uh, Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, I did a little while after that, along with the other uh, LucasArts flight sims. It's in the episode called LucasArts flight sims, so if you want to go back, check those out. Uh, I had a lot of fun covering those games. I'm I'm a a little bit of a flight sim nut myself, Uh, at least I was back in the day, I kind of got away from them a little bit, and uh, I started coming back. I, I just got Flight Simulator 10 on Steam, um, I guess during the Steam sale, because it was very, very cheap, so uh, I'll have to, <laughs> and I'm kind of teetering on the edge of getting a new, I have my Logitech Wingman Extreme 3D, and I'm kind of teetering on the edge of spending a bit more money and getting a HOTAS, maybe, a, what is it, the SciTech X55, but I've been reading, I'm using Windows 8.1, and I've been reading that there's all kinds of problems with the X55, and uh and windows eight one, so I'm kind of holding off uh a little bit, and uh you know it's also like two hundred bucks so <laughs> uh yeah, but one of these days you know if if only for the fact that i'm play that I am playing elite a lot uh these days, I set up my face tracker and all that stuff so uh lots of fun with elite and I'm glad that uh that i I did end up biting on it and you know frankly, I should just log into star citizen and, and see where they're at, because apparently, you know, they are doing a lot of, you know, a lot of wingman's hangers and and dev updates and everything. And, and, you know, Chris Roberts has a huge team of, I don't even know how many, like 80 developers or something across four different uh, development houses working on various aspects of the game. So, you know, things are trucking along, at least that's what they're saying. But, uh, you know, I guess just with the amount of free time that I have, I don't have the time or the inclination or the desire to spend it in a game that you know is is a demo kind of a thing so um that's just me but you know they need testers so if anyone's interested in star citizen hey you know don't take my word for it i i paid I, I i'm in there i just don't play it much but uh you know go go spend all the time you want all right so finally we have an email from father beast i guess there was uh quite a few uh quite a few emails on uh past episodes i guess uh people had some time over the holidays to get caught up so father beast writes joe i have a few minor things to mention first i played a little bit of the first broken sword game in anticipation for your show since i discovered i have the director's cut in my gog library how did that get there (laughs) that just to interrupt that that happens to me all the time it's like oh wow this game's on sale i want to go buy it oh i already have it well i guess that's good maybe i should play it (laughs) anyways he continues i didn't get very far But it seems interesting, and I intend to get back and finish it sometime soon. It reminds me of some other game, Siberia. Except that Siberia had ridiculously difficult puzzles, while Broken Sword doesn't seem too difficult. One thing I was surprised that you didn't mention, since it was vilified in the season finale of the Backseat Designers podcast which you attended, uh, this is a game where it will announce to you when you have acquired all the clues in a location. I actually got a bit frustrated because I couldn't leave one of the locations because I hadn't done everything there yet. Uh, The only exit was the automatic fade-out when you finished getting all the clues. In the news episode, you talked about your new obsession with Elite Dangerous, and you mentioned you might have to shell out major bucks for a HOTAS setup. Well, remember back in the X-Wing episode when I said I wanted to play, but my only joystick was one that plugged into a 15-pin or something port, which doesn't exist on current machines? Remember that? (laughs) I found a USB joystick at a thrift store for $3, and it works beautifully. It's a Thrustmaster Fox 2 Pro, which uh, was a pretty hot joystick when it came out in 2001. After my son started gushing about Elite Dangerous, but had trouble flying with his Xbox 360 controller, I gave him that one for Christmas. I already had a replacement in uh, a Logitech Attack 3, also $3 at a thrift store. Just saying that if you don't want to shell out big bucks for the new hotness, you might want to see about getting something that was Master of Flight Sims 10 or 15 years ago. I enjoy the other podcast list of podcasts to check out. Uh, I tried to get all of them and wish to give a first review and impressions. Uh, Retro Bits and You Don't Know Flack seem to be podcasts that focus on old hardware rather than games, which, you know, that's sorry, this is Joe talking now, which to me actually seems pretty interesting. Uh, He continues Retro City, Retro Gaming Roundup, Tadpog, No Quarter and Wired's Game Life seem to be mostly focused on console gaming. Uh, I'm already listening to the DOS Nostalgia podcast, which is exactly what it says. And Three Moves Ahead, Strategy Gaming, Mostly Current, and I enjoy them. Uh, I'm not sure what to think of the same coin or W1S1. Uh, I may have been getting a little burned out by the time I tried listening to them. I'll try them again sometimes. Watch out for Fireballs is a winner in my book. Uh, It does seem to talk about console games a lot, but I just listened to a three-parter about Morrowind that was very entertaining. Finally, you said in your Twitter feed that your next game, Strife, was making you motion sick. Uh, I thought the king of motion sick making games was Descent, which is famous for making PC Gamer editor Rob Smolka throw up. Uh, I don't recall that you said that game made you motion sick back when you covered it. Incidentally, Descent is one of those games I really want to go back to with a good joystick. Uh, That's all for right now. Love the show. And I'll say more when you cover another game I've experienced with, Father Beast. Well, thank you, Father Beast. And um, I'm trying to remember, and I don't think Descent um, caused me to, to become ill, and I think There's a very specific kind of game that does this. I'm going to talk about this more when I get to to talk about Strife. But I think there is a very specific type of game and a very specific kind of set of parameters that trigger my queasiness. And I think it has to do with some combination of refresh rate and too fast movement. Kind of a thing. So when you go play Wolfenstein 3D on like a modern system, it runs very fast. Maybe a little bit faster than the developers had intended for it to run, and it just that creates like kind of this weird dissonance in in my inner ear or something, and it just makes me not happy. <laughs> Let's just say. And as for the joystick, yeah, you know, I I have a, I have a Logitech Wingman Extreme 3D Pro, whatever it's called, and. You know, it's a good joystick, it's got a lot of buttons. I have them all mapped for Elite Dangerous. It's got a throttle on the base and all that, but I really want like the like a, a Hotas, like throttle that I can push forward and pull back and and that. So I do have a joystick and it actually works very well. And so that's why I really haven't rushed out to buy a hot a Hotas, hands on throttle and stick, for anyone who doesn't know what that means, H O T A S. But um You know, it's always it's nice to to treat yourself and get something new every once in a while, but uh thanks for all the other comments thanks for the observations about the other podcasts so you know if you guys want to so it looks like uh watch out for fireballs is uh is the one to go check out if uh if you guys are interested and um yeah you know i am also interested in hearing stuff about console gaming i had an nes i had a super nintendo so you know hearing hearing stuff about that's fun but uh you know depending on what your history is then uh you know that may not float your boat so that's that. Let's uh, let's get on with things. A lot of it, e- emails. Thanks, everyone, for, for that, as always. And uh, like I said, I guess there was a bit of a, a break over the holidays, so people had some time to write some things. So thanks for all of it, and keep on sending them.
1: You're listening oh. to the Upper
0: Memory Block Podcast. Time for
1: Overview.
0: All right. Wow, well, we're already, like, 15 minutes in. That was a lot of email. Uh, so this week... We're hitting a one-off game uh, called Strife Quest for the Sigil. So Strife was developed by Rogue Entertainment and published by Velocity, and it released in the year 1996. Now, the fact that it was developed by Rogue and published by Velocity is a very interesting story, which we'll get to in Dev Story, so, so stay tuned. So genre-wise, because it's time to talk about the genre, uh, we find ourselves with another hybrid game here. Uh, Strife is a first-person shooter slash role-playing game. Uh, So within the first five seconds of gameplay, you'll know you are playing a very classic style first-person shooter. It's so classic, in fact, that uh, you will realize that this game is actually just running on the Doom engine. So basically, uh, from an FPS perspective, we're basically playing Doom. So uh, with this in mind, what's a first-person shooter? Well, a first-person shooter, or FPS, as I'm going to say, because I don't feel like saying first-person shooter over and over and over again, Uh, this kind of game puts you directly inside the body of your character. You see the world through their eyes. Uh, You also generally do not see much of your own body, uh, even if the game provides you with the ability to look down in a manner in which you would generally see your body. Um, Your lack of body aside, though... Most FPS's require the player to navigate a series of missions, or levels, or quests, or whatever you want to call them, in a fairly linear order, uh, while defeating a variety of progressively more difficult enemies uh, and solving some light puzzles. Enemies can take virtually any form, and uh, are usually defeated via direct confrontation with weapons. Now, these weapons uh, are are a a main focus of a first-person shooter, and they can take any form from realistic to sci-fi to magical. uh, Well, close-in melee weapons are almost always offered, they tend to be used as more of kind of a last resort. The main focus of FPS weapons are of of the projectile type. Uh, Each weapon has different attributes, such as damage per shot, range, type of damage, rate of fire, ammunition, many, many more options there. Uh, buff items, new weapons and ammunition are usually strewn through levels and are also dropped by defeated enemies. Now FPS puzzles tend to present themselves in uh, in a few kind of limited forms, usually kind of like locked doors or impassable pits or things like that. Uh, resolution to these puzzles may involve finding a key of some type, find the blue key card, or uh, you know, flipping one or more switches found somewhere else in the level. And, uh, you know, flipping those switches results in a door being unlocked or a bridge being deployed or, you know, something to that effect. Now, uh, this game also has role-playing elements to it. So we're not just an FPS, we're also an RPG. Uh, In a role-playing game or RPG, your main goal is to complete a series of quests all culminating in the resolution of a main quest line. In some ways, kind of like an adventure game, but uh, the way you go about it is a bit different. So to do this... You take on the role of a specific character with a certain set of skills. <laughs> so they've got skills, they've got strength, they've got weaknesses, and uh, all those things are associated to a set of uh, numerical statistics. Now, as you progress through the game, you, d- you decide kind of how to develop your character's skills and abilities, molding him or her into a somewhat unique individual within the confines of the game's systems. Now, role playing games tend to favor more strategic combat, uh, you know, interaction with non player characters, uh, gathering of facts, and, uh, and deeper storytelling. They also tend to be much longer than more standard action adventure game types. So, how does Strife mash these two things together? Because these sound like very different kinds of games, right? Well, Strife is definitely more one than the other, but let's move on and, uh, and we'll figure that out as we go. You are listening to the Memory Podcast. Okay, time to talk story. So, despite the fact that uh, this is a Doom engine powered game, it does differ from its parent in one pretty major way. Now, unlike most games that came straight from id and John Carmack and John Romero and all those guys, this game actually has a story that's more of a ca- more than a casual afterthought designed to provide kind of a minimal amount of framing for the bloodbath you're about to create. Now, this game's intro takes uh, about a minute and a half-ish to create a bit of a world for us.
1: The comet struck our planet without warning. We lost our paradise in a single violent stroke. The impact released a virus which swept through the land and killed millions they turned out to be the lucky ones. For those that did not die became mutations of humanity. Some became fanatics who heard the voice of a malignant god in their heads and called themselves the Order. Those of us who were deaf to this voice suffer horribly and are forced to serve these ruthless psychotics who wield weapons more powerful than anything we can muster. They destroy our women and children so that we must hide them underground and live like animals in constant fear for our lives. But there are whispers of discontent. If we organize, can we defeat our masters? Weapons are being stolen. Soldiers are being trained. A movement is born, born of lifelong strife.
0: So we are on a post-apocalyptic earth as we heard, a comic hit the, a comet, not a comic. <laughs> a comet hit the planet and uh, unleashed a virus, which ended up killing a huge chunk of the population. Now the rest you really just heard. Uh, that's the setup for the world in general. Your situation is focused on in uh, a quick paragraph in the game manual. It says, and I quote: "You are a wandering mercenary led to the small town of Tarnhill by rumors of conflict between the Order, a well-equipped religious dictatorship, and the Front, the ragtag resistance movement." While searching for the front, you decide to take a brief rest somewhere that you thought was safe. The Order Acolytes have been rounding up all suspicious characters in the area. Yes, you happen to be one of them. What they didn't expect, though, is the knife you keep concealed for situations just like this one. End quote. Uh, So this is literally where the game begins, so let's cut on over to gameplay. So, you've been rounded up by the Acolytes of the Order. From the intro, uh, you're dumped directly into the world. Uh, You're about to be interrogated by the Acolytes that picked you up because, you know, you're a shady character. Right now, they have their backs to you, possibly concerned with other tasks or just talking amongst themselves. Basically, they're not really interested in you very much. Now, if you've played Doom... And frankly, at this point, which of us hasn't played some version of Doom, uh, you'll be very at home in this interface. Uh, the bottom of the screen contains various pieces of status information: your health and armor, uh, listing your current weapons and ammo, and an enhancement over Doom—an inventory of quest and consumable items. Now, the rest of the screen is taken up by your view, which looks decidedly Doom-like, shall we say. So, the two acolytes are uh, are facing away from you and uh, you've got your trusty knife equipped. Now, let's talk about this knife. It's actually called a punch dagger. Now, unlike melee weapons in other FPS games, the punch dagger isn't necessarily a last resort fallback only to be used when you're, you're out of ammo and you're totally screwed. Now, the reason for this is that Strife is not a game that can be played like you would play Doom. Now, while I wouldn't consider Strife a stealth game on the level of, like, Thief or something like that, It absolutely does have stealth components. Now, one major point in this game is you can't just run around murdering everyone you come across a la Doom. If you do run and gun and you know in town or in open spaces, you'll set off alarms and the area will flood with guards who will eventually overwhelm you and kill you. So the punch dagger is helpful in that it doesn't really make a ton of noise, and if you're quick enough, you could take out individual guards without alerting the rest of them, then thus avoiding a situation where you're likely to be overwhelmed. Also, like most other FPS melee weapons, the punch dagger doesn't run out of ammo. So that's, you know, that's another advantage. So we run up behind one of the guards and we start sticking him with our knife. Uh, it takes a few, quite a few hits, shall we say, to uh, but we eventually take him down, rinse and repeat for the next guard. And, uh, you know, as usual, they'll drop ammo, which is interesting because we don't actually have a gun. So uh, the ammo right now, not incredibly useful. It actually takes, your ha- takes quite a while for you to get your hands on, on a real honest-to-goodness gun in this game. Anyways, escaping from this interrogation area, we soon come across our first real, shall we call him a non-enemy, friendly, friendly NPC. Non-enemy, the opposite of, non, the opposite of enemy is friendly, so he is a friendly NPC. Uh, and his name is Rowan. He notices your, uh, your quick dispatching of, uh, of the guards and realizes that we might be able to help him and his people
1: out. In a small world, word travels fast. I hear you just removed some obstacles from your path. Nice work. Are you interested in some more lucrative projects? Good. Some uh, friends of mine need someone silenced. Belden is being held by the order in their sanctuary. There's a rarely used entrance by a small pier off the river, which is unguarded. Get in. Shut him up and bring his ring back to me as proof. I'll guarantee 50 gold. And if you return without setting off every alarm in town, there's the chance to earn much, much more. And here's a little helper that should give you an edge. Good. Remember, his silence is golden.
0: So we've got to go kill a guy, or at least we've got to get his ring from him. Now, looking at our in-game map, we see a waypoint highlighted inside the building. Now, I don't think this was a feature in the original game, but I'm playing kind of a, a more recent version. So we actually do have, have waypoints, which, which is very helpful. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's time to make our way over there and, and do what needs to be done. Now, one interesting thing I'll bring up. In this interaction with Rowan, you know, when, whenever you heard a burr, burr kind of a thing, uh, that's you selecting uh, dialogue options and you always have the option to refuse a quest or just kind of walk away. This is all well and good, and it's interesting, though I'm not really sure what value it brings to the experience, since, you know, if you don't complete missions, especially if you don't complete this first mission, you can't actually progress the game at all. So as you wander the map, you also come across a tavern, where you'll meet another quest giver named Harris. Now, Harris seems a little bit slicker and quite a bit shadier than Rowan, and he asks you to steal something for him. I think it's a, ch- I believe it's a chalice, uh, and it's actually in the same location that you're going to for Rowan's mission. Anyways, so with these two missions in hand, you proceed to your waypoint. Now, here's another interesting difference from Doom, though I think Hexen maybe works the same way, but it's been forever since I played Hexen, so I can't quite recall. But when you exit, what I consider to be the the overworld map—that's you know the area we start in, the town of Tarnhill. The game kind of pauses for a second and then loads maps of of uh, the new area you're entering with uh, the state of that area somewhat remembered from the last time you were there if you had come there before, but also set for uh, the current mission. So because of this, this game is actually not incredibly linear. It's definitely not as linear as a game like Doom would be. You know, you can actually go to many areas in, in any order you'd like, though some of them do get unlocked as you're issued different missions. But later on in the game, you'll actually be required to revisit some older areas for different reasons. And you know, this this was obviously very novel for Doom Engine games at this time. So when Rowan issued you your mission, he also handed you a small helper in the form of a crossbow with uh, with electric bolts. Now the crossbow is your second weapon and your other stealth friendly weapon after the punch dagger. Uh, the electric bolts do bonus damage versus mechanical targets, but do reduced damage to uh, to living targets. Well, this is how we start. Since this is an FPS, of course, we have access to many other weapons with a, you know, a variety of uses. Let's kind of run over them since, again, FPS weapons, it's kind of like the whole reason you're doing it, right? So for living targets, you eventually get your hands on poison bolts that fit in your crossbow. Now, these are awesome, as they basically one-shot any living target they hit. You know, The targets also die quietly, so your, your state of stealth is maintained. Eventually, either in this first mission or in the next uh, the next mission, you do get the opportunity to pick up an assault rifle. Now, this is kind of the standard weapon of the Apo- Acolytes, and that's great because it's, uh, its ammo is plentiful. Next, you get the mini missile launcher, which is your standard rocket launcher. It does splash damage and all that noise. If you fire it too close to you, you get hurt too. Uh, The Grenade Launcher is a double-barreled weapon which can fire two types of ammo. Uh, Standard Grenades, which launch and bounce off of surfaces, exploding after a few seconds. Uh, Phosphorus Grenades do the same thing, but they explode into flames that burn for 45 seconds. You also have the Flamethrower, which is a short-range, high-damage weapon that does exactly what you think it does. The Mauler has two modes. Uh, The first... Works sort of like a super shotgun, uh, firing a scattered burst that causes high damage. The second mode uses even more ammo, but uh, fires a large ball of energy which causes incredibly high damage, but it's pretty slow moving. Uh, this weapon's sort of a combination of uh, the super shotgun from Doom 2 and also the uh, the BFG 9000. Finally, we have the Sigil of the One God. Now, this is a weapon that's built of five parts, which uh, you gather close to, uh, close to the end of the game. Now, each evolution of the weapon, as you add an additional part to it, provides a different weapon effect. Uh, I'm not going to get into it too much because this weapon's pretty integral to the story, hence why uh, its name is in the game's subtitle. So, all these weapons are real, real great, but right now we've got a punch dagger and we've got a crossbow. So, uh, now we enter an area known as the Sanctuary. Uh, we quickly see the chalice that Harris wants us to steal. Uh, it's kind of behind a force field, so we'll talk about that later. Can't do anything about it now. These missions, of, of which this is the first one, is kind of where the bulk of Strife's gameplay takes place. As soon as you walk through the first door into the sanctuary, alarms go off, putting all the guards on alert. So as you walk through certain doors, you'll notice they have like a green uh, glow around them or a blue glow around them. These are alarmed. And if you walk through a green one, it's going to go off no matter what. If you walk through a blue one, there are situations where it won't go off. So I guess uh, because we walk through a green door, set off the alarm, not going to be much stealth going on in this mission. Uh, searching around you eventually flip the proper switches to raise platforms to get around to where our target is being held you meet him you talk to him and uh, you realize you basically have no option but to kill him to complete your mission in other situations further on in the game you'll have a choice you know if you have a target to kill maybe you know he'll pay you off and and you don't have to kill him and and stuff like that there's there's choices in this game which you know give you some options of how to finish the the, uh, missions but for this one you don't have a choice. You kill him, you collect his ring. Uh, now, since we've flipped all the switches and done what we have to do, we've probably turned off that force field that's guarding that chalice. We should go and get it now, right? Well, no, wrong. You should not go and get it. This side quest is actually a red herring. Now, if you take this chalice, you basically have to restart the game. Harris won't take it from you. And if you have it in your possessions, a possession, you know, guards are going to kill you on site. Also in the next mission, or in a couple missions from now, uh, you're going to have to speak with the governor because you're going to have to get him to do some stuff for you. If you have the chalice in your possession, uh, the governor is going to stick a huge number of guards on you and you'll have to restart. So (laughs) this is another thing about Strife. At times, it's almost, I guess we could say, Sierra-like in its unforgiving story elements. So this Red Herring quest is one of them. I don't think there's too many more of those. But, uh, you know, like I said... Earlier, also, if you decide to forego stealth and just start shooting like a madman in town, you'll get overwhelmed by guards and you'll be killed. Also, you can basically kill anyone you want in this game, including the quest givers, and including people who are not quest givers right now, but who may be quest givers later. Uh, If you kill a quest giver, though, you might block yourself and not be able to progress the story because, well, you can't get the next quest. Now, this is a dead-end heavy game, so, you know, save often. And I think actually when the game originally came out, it only had one save slot. So if you made a wrong choice, you saved over your old choice. <laughs> Too bad. That was patched later on. So now there's multiple save slots and stuff like that. But uh, definitely some uh, some roadblocks possible to uh, to get in this game. So if you've done things right and you haven't gone and mucked around and screwed things up, you'll return to Rowan and he will you know give you your 50 gold and all that and then introduce you to Blackbird blackbird soon becomes your closest ally now I don't think maybe right at the end of the game you don't ever meet her face to face except maybe one ending uh, at the end of the game uh she's basically a voice in your ear that uh talks to you via radio she's sort of like your handler or your version of, of cortana she's your she's she's cortana to your master chief uh you know she gives you instructions on the fly advice about your current situation all kinds of stuff like that she's got a nice voice. Blackbird directs you to a secret base operated by the Front, a rebel organization fighting the tyranny of the Order. Uh, you then meet the Front's leader, Mael. From now on, you're working for them in order to defeat, well, the uh, the Order. Uh, the bulkier missions are issued to this end, and this is how the rest of the game plays out. So that's just a very cursory overview of gameplay. I didn't want to get too deep into the story either. As I said, the bulk of the game is very Doom-like from an action perspective, though. Uh, the almost kind of open world quality of it is is ever present. You know, if an NPC is not shooting at you, you can go talk to them. Border guards included. They won't have much to say. They'll probably just be like, "Behave yourself" or "Don't get in trouble." But um, you know, you can talk to anybody. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, you can also improve some aspects of your character. Now, every time you complete a mission, Meso will give you a voucher for an accuracy upgrade. Uh, this accuracy upgrade improves of uh, the accuracy obviously of uh, of some of your weapons most notably the assault rifle now this can be used in conjunction with an item called the targeter now the targeter puts up a crosshair showing kind of a bounding box indicating where your shots will fall given your current accuracy score kind of at different ranges uh you can also apply stamina upgrades in the same manner stamina upgrades upgrade both your maximum health and also the damage of your punch dagger because you know you get stronger so you can punch harder now granted This isn't an incredibly deep character-building experience. It's not Dungeons and Dragons. It's not, you know, Dragon Age Inquisition or anything like that. But, you know, these these elements, these RPG kind of character-building elements do add to the immersion of the world. Now, Strife also had a multiplayer component, which I don't know too much about, but I believe it was basically straight Doom 2-style deathmatch over modem or IPX SPX network. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So to play Strife, you required at least a 486DX2, 66 megahertz, which I had, I loved that machine. Uh, you also required eight megs of RAM, a CD-ROM drive, and about 70 megs of hard drive space for game data and another 18 megs for save data. So we're looking about just a hair under 90 megs for uh, for the full experience of Strife. Now to get the best experience, a Pentium processor, and a sound card were recommended. Now the game supported Sound Blaster, Gravis Ultrasound, and Pro Audio Spectrum for digital sound, and basically all popular MIDI specs, you know, uh, general MIDI by this point, the MT-32 was kind of old news by 1996. What's it called, the Sound Blaster, AWE, and uh, the Wave Blaster, and all those kinds of things. Uh, Basically all those MIDI specs were supported for uh, the music as you're hearing it right now. Now, To play multiplayer, you needed at least a 9600 BOD modem or an IPX compatible network. So this is the first non-id game I'm discussing which is built on the Doom engine. Uh, so as we've discussed before, even way back to the first episode, a game engine is is the core or the executable part of the game's code base. It's the part of the game that accepts player inputs and make act- makes action happen on the screen. Of course, the concept of a game engine as a unique piece of software only came about really after after Doom was created. So the actual structure of the Doom engine, much like uh, you know the Sierra engines and um, you know the LucasArts engines, weren't quite as clean and doom especially was not quite as clean as game engines are today. Now the doom engine was more like a skeleton of a game, or really just the source code of doom that could be modified to create other games within a certain set of limits. Now, we discussed the detailed creation of the engine back in the DOOM episode, but suffice it to say that Strife appears to, be to have been built on at least the same version of the game code that DOOM 2 was built on, which it uh, conveniently or appropriately, shall we say, named version 1.666. Now, this is an interesting aspect of the game engine and of DOOM itself. Now, since multiplayer was such a big thing, uh, the doom engine and its various updates sort of led the way in, uh, in very early and very rudimentary kind of old school digital distribution. you know if you were very much into doom engine games and doom Deathmatch, you could download updated versions of the game featuring bug fixes and, and you know new features like more player matching and dashboards and stuff like that um, from uh, from BBSs, from news groups and other places like that if you really wanted to uh, to stay ahead of the curve. Now, the scope of Strife and uh, and the many ways it differs from Doom 2 really are a testament to, to the robustness and the very deep modability of uh, of the Doom source. Uh, granted, you know, game engines are a dime a dozen these days, but what John Carmack and the other id guys did, uh, you know, in the early days at the company was, was truly revolutionary, which is not to say that uh, the team at Rogue Entertainment that we're going to talk about in a little bit didn't have to be creative. For example, and I'm going to talk about this here because this is definitely a bit more technical. Uh, Doom, obviously, again, if you've played it, never really had any facilities for, for NPC interaction. You know, aside from basically blowing their faces off. But, in this game, you know, you need to talk to people and you need to traverse conversation trees, right? You, you can choose to walk away, you can choose to ask a question, you can choose to ask how much money you're going to be paid. There, there's a couple of different options for each, each conversation here. Well, what did this mean? Well, I guess they could have sat down, they could have tried to write a new conversation interaction module, which, you know, basically would have been an extension of the engine and would have kind of defeated the purpose of using the engine, meaning you'd only have to put in like, you know, art assets and event scripting and stuff like that. Here you'd be putting in more UI and more functionality and logic and all this stuff. So that would have been challenging. It would have been time consuming. And frankly, I don't even know if it was in the scope of of what these guys were able to do. Well, wait a second. Doom might not have the ability to manage conversations, but it does have a menu system that can display a text overlay on the screen and allow the player to select options to varying results. Like when you start the game, there's a menu there, right? you want to start? Do you want to load? Do you want to blah, blah, blah? So this is what they did. You know, they, they took this menu system and they modified it to fulfill the purpose of, uh, of managing conversations. And frankly, it works pretty damned well. So, you know, as much as using the Doom engine, saved the team time and resources and, you know, it made the coding of, of the, the combat and all that stuff much faster because they didn't have to do it. They still had to be creative at certain points to you know, make the engine do what they wanted it to do. Now the music of Strife was composed by Maury Goldstein. Uh, he worked on a variety of titles for, uh, for Velocity, the game's publisher, and uh, he was also a very accomplished professional saxophone player. Sadly, he passed away in 2008 of a, of a brain tumor. His music for Strife really serves to set the mood for the game. You know, it's sort of a rock slash techno kind of sound that fits the strange post-apocalyptic world of the game very, very well. It's all done in MIDI, but you know, to me, sounds great.
1: You're listening to the
0: Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Story. Okay, Dev Story time. Now, Strife is the work of Rogue Entertainment. However, that's not where the game started its life. Now, Strife began as a project at Cygnus Studios. Now, Cygnus was a relatively young development house, having been founded by programmer Scott Host in Dallas, Texas, I think around 1992 or something like that. Uh, the company published, published its first game, uh, and that game I remember quite well. It was called Galactics. It was a top-down shooter for DOS, and it came out yes in the year 1992. So maybe the game is for the company was founded a bit before that, or it founded with the launch of Galactics in 1992. Now it was published by 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 uh, by Cygnus itself, and uh, you know the game was was popular and, and well regarded, and it got the attention of Apogee, and soon thereafter. Uh, Cygnus released Raptor Call of the Shadows, which Apogee would publish in 1994. Now, with this success, because Raptor was was a great game, again, one I need to cover. I need to cover a bunch of these Apogee games. I haven't really talked about many of them. But, uh, you know, Cygnus moved on to their next projects. Uh, through Apogee's work with id, you know, putting out Commander Keen and Wolfenstein and, and you know, with their their work on Doom... Uh, the team at Cygnus, through through this kind of relationship that id had with Apogee, formed a bit of a working relationship with John Romero and John Carmack. This led id to license uh, the source code for their new Doom engine to Cygnus and another company called Raven Software. Uh, Raven would use this code to bring us Heretic and then bring us Hexen, which uh, I'll also have to discuss one of these days. Now Cygnus would take the Doom source and uh, you know, they'd change directions. They'd become known for top-down shooters, but now they felt it was time to expand out into uh, into into role-playing. So you know, they had two ideas with two different teams and two different sets of its source code. Now, the first project was named Second Sword, and uh, you know, this was an RPG based on the Shadowcaster game engine, which was was sort of a a stepping stone engine that John Carmack had written after Wolfenstein 3D but uh, before he started work on the Doom engine. uh, The second sword was eventually abandoned for reasons we will likely soon uh, find out. Now, Strife had almost the same story as uh, a second sword with a slightly different ending. Now, Jim Malinetz was a designer working at Cygnus at the time. So he had the idea of creating a pretty deep and complex world using the tools that it had provided. So, he and the rest of his team, including programmers Rich Flyder and Steve Maines, set out to do just that. Now, as they were working through the design and writing and programming of the game, uh, in addition to making the required changes to the base Doom source code, an announcement came down from on high. Scott Host, uh, founder of the company, had decided he wanted to leave Dallas and move the company back to his hometown of Chicago. Well, Suffice it to say that Molinets, his team, and many of the other Cygnus employees weren't quite as keen to move back east as, uh, as Host was. So Host and a few other players picked up shop and renamed Cygnus to Mountain King Studios back in Chicago. Uh, they abandoned both RPG projects and would continue to release top-down shooters as, as they moved forward. So Malinets, Flighter, and Mainz gathered up the remains of Cygnus' staff in Dallas and founded a new company, which they called Rogue Entertainment. Though I don't have any proof of it, I imagine that in their severance or all this stuff from Cygnus, uh, the three founders of Rogue worked in the rights to continue work on Strife. I kind of figured this wasn't a big deal to uh, to Scott Host. Now, since all this happened fairly quickly, uh, Molinets needed help getting, uh, getting things set up. This is where Id stepped in. Uh, John Romero offered to help Rogue get set up in the same Dallas office building that uh, that ID was in. Uh, he also helped them fill out the team with some additional programmers and level designers through kind of the ID uh, the ID community. Another challenge was that Scott Host at Cygnus was the man that had the relationship with Apogee. Now it turns out that circumstances had changed. Well, Cygnus was developing uh, was developing Strife. Apogee was on board to publish it. Well, now that that wasn't the case anymore. Apogee was out. Well, looking around, they eventually settled with Velocity as a publisher, which was a relief at the time. However, meh, we'll see We'll see what comes out of that. So regardless of all this politicking and blah, 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 work continued on the game, but um, the situation cost the game about a year of development time. So it started development at Cygnus in 94. Had everything gone according to plan... The game should have come out sometime in 1995, but things turned out the way they did, and instead of releasing in 95, the game came out in mid-1996. So what? If it's a good game, what difference will a year make? Well, let's put it this way. Strife is, without a doubt, a unique, large, and well-put-together game, and a lot of reviews at the time even reflect those positive aspects. Had it come out in 1995, and had it been published by Apogee... I think this game would have done amazingly well however the game came out in 1996 you know what else came out in 1996 quake you know what else came out in 1996 duke nukem 3d duke U- duke 3d came out in january and Quake came out later in the year strife was right smack in between them so you have this game it's running a two-year-old engine with both it's next-gen, fully 3D game out, in addition to the biggest build engine game in history. Strife was just too late. It didn't sell well, because graphically and gameplay-wise, it was blown away by the next-gen titles. On top of this, their publisher, Velocity, was already in financial trouble when they agreed to publish the game. You know, They didn't have the money, or maybe they didn't have the desire, or both, to, to promote the game very much. You know, they did what they could, but it wasn't enough. As a result of this sales failure, in fact, directly as a result of this sales failure, Velocity actually shut down that same year, leaving Rope to look for uh, another publisher for future titles. So, unfortunately, Strife would be the last commercially licensed game built on the Doom engine. You are listening to the Upper General Podcast. So, where can you pick up Strife today? Well, for a very long time, you couldn't really get it anywhere officially. However, since it was built on the Doom engine, you could, if you could get your hands on it, uh, you didn't even need to use DOSBox. You could run it on one of the many, many Doom source ports, like I think Zed Doom is one of them, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, uh, you know, that are available for free. But, you know, it worked so well that uh, Night Dive Studios decided they would make it official. On December 15th, 2014, they released Strife Veteran Edition on Steam for 10 bucks US. Now the game features both an original mode and a high def mode. Now the high def mode supports uh, widescreen resolutions, higher definition textures, dynamic lighting, Steam achievements. But if you don't like that, you can play in the original version with original resources and even according to uh, according to the uh, the game menu, even with a bunch of original bugs in there. Okay, so before we get to my verdict, we've got one more email. Actually, in fact, we've got one voicemail from uh, Emma Riot Akigo. So take it away, sir.
2: Hello, Joe. I'm Akago here again with my second voicemail in a row. First of all, I'd like to wish you a Happy New Year again, and hope to hear many great shows from you in 2015. Now, as a follow up from my last voicemail, where I talked about exploring different genres that I normally didn't play, I wanted to mention that lately I've been playing a lot of commandos behind enemy lines after I bought it from GOG.com for 99 cents. If you don't know, it's a real time tactical strategy game from 1998 where you control a team of specialists during World War II and you go on stealth missions to sabotage the German army and it's something I'd definitely like to hear you cover on a future show, because in several ways it's very much ahead of its time, but also relentlessly difficult at times, and has a few odd design decisions that haven't aged quite as well. Nevertheless, I'm really enjoying it for how it forces you to think and methodically work your way to your objectives without being seen, and effectively use the different abilities of your units. But on to the relevant subject of the day, Strife. Now here's a game that I have fond memories of, and it allows me to once again delve into my shady past in gaming piracy. See, here in the Netherlands during the late 1990s, the popular thing at the time was a series of bootleg CD-ROMs called Twilight, which contained games and applications and were freely passed around and copied between friends. A friend of my brother's had a couple of these and gave some to us to borrow one time, so I had a look at the games contained within and found this one called Strife that I'd never heard of before. The screenshots looked cool, so I figured I'd fire it up, and I was pleasantly surprised by what I saw, in a time when Quake and Duke Nukem 3D ruled supreme, that's saying a lot. It did take some adjustment to properly play the game at first though, because I wasn't used to playing a first person shooter where you weren't supposed to shoot at everybody that wasn't you, but I was nonetheless immediately sucked in by the story told in the awesome comic book style intro. Now the game itself wasn't especially deep or anything, but I was still impressed by its scope, with the dialogues, mission structure and freely moving between maps in a non-linear fashion, which wasn't something I'd seen a lot in first person shooters back then, and definitely not one running on the venerable Doom engine. Probably the only exception to that rule I can think of offhand was Hexen, and I didn't much care for that game myself. Anyway, figuring out where to go and what to do was a bit tricky though, especially with how easy it was to render the game unwinnable. If you said one wrong thing to somebody or triggered the alarms in the main hub, you'd suddenly have dozens of guards teleport in and shoot you dead, or hell, just the first mission you get from the Christopher Walken wannabe at the tavern turns out to be a trap, and by the time you figured that out, you've already screwed things up so badly that you've got no choice but to restart. The maps were a bit hard to navigate as well, which I suppose was the norm back then. Especially finding my way through the frickin' sewer level wasn't a whole lot of fun, considering how you were constantly taking damage from the toxic waste unless you had a steady supply of environmental suits, and with how badly I kept getting lost, those ran out pretty quickly for me. Nevertheless, once I figured things out, I really enjoyed seeing the story unfold and how things would eventually lead up to this massive siege on the Order's castle, with dozens of friendly soldiers engaged in combat and you yourself leading the charge trying to get to the boss. The action in this game was great overall, very fast paced with cool weaponry and enemies. My favorite gun of course has to be the mauler, cause I just get a lot of sadistic glee watching enemies vanish into thin air with a scream. The bosses did get ridiculously hard at times though, with how they could reduce you to a red paste on the floor in just one or two hits, and often you'd be forced to use the Sigil super weapon against them, which of course drains your health every time you use it, so these battles kind of devolved into a game of saving every time you landed the hit and restoring every time you got hit instead. And then when you did kill them, you'd still have to deal with their second form. I did beat the game eventually, but only through using cheat codes because of how the last few parts of the game just got ridiculously hard. Nevertheless, one of the main reasons I still fondly remember this game are the dialogues and how hammy and unintentionally funny the voice acting could get at times. One of my favorite parts is when you go up to this one technician in the power center who tells you, if they keep pushing the power crystal this hard, it's gonna flaw and then shatter and then BOOM! Just a thought. And another line I still like to quote to this day is this other guy you meet a bit later who grumbles, work, sleep and get tortured. What a life. So as you can tell, I really dug the hell out of this game and still do. <laughs> Gotta pick up that re-release on Steam one of these days if I ever feel like replaying it again. Anyway, I've rambled on long enough, so once again I'd just like to say, Joe, keep being awesome and I'll look forward to your next show. So, this was Amiridakiko, and remember, FIGHT FOR THE FRONT AND FREEDOM! MOVE OUT!
0: Well, thank you, sir, and great, great comments. I'm glad you actually brought up a few points that uh, I neglected to mention. First of all, the uh, the maze-like, uh, a lot of the maze-like levels, including that sewer level. I think it was a thing in the 90s that you had to have a sewer level or a, some other type of ridiculous maze, like the, uh, the sewers and Dark Forces still make me shudder, and... Uh, on top of that, the uh, you also mentioned the the hammy voice acting. Yeah, like I said, the game isn't super deep or anything like that, but it's definitely a lot deeper than, than Doom would be, that's for sure. And, um, you know, I like the fact that they did put in a lot of, of dialogue and uh, with the more important characters, a whole bunch of voice acting. Like any game at the time, yeah, a lot of it wasn't awesome, but uh, it wasn't as bad as some of the accents in Broken Sword at least, though I'd argue the writing was probably a bit better in Broken Sword. Than in this game, but anyways, thanks a lot for that great voicemail. If anyone else wants to send voicemails, I love them. I love other voices on the show, and you guys sometimes know a lot more about these games than uh, than I do, because uh, I definitely didn't play this one at the time. So uh, yeah, thanks a lot. So, does Strife Quest for the Sigil hold up today? Well first a story. I alluded to it a little bit at the beginning, but, um, you know, I was actually supposed to have this episode out last week. Now I'd never played this game before. So during the Christmas holidays, I sat down to play it as I usually do, doing my research. I wanted to stream it on YouTube and and do all that stuff. Uh, because I won't, it's my personal kind of my thing. I won't do a podcast about a game I haven't played at least a few hours of. So I settled in, I watched the intro and uh, I was starting to get intrigued. You know, I dropped into the game and I started playing. Now, right away, I noticed the game moved very, very quickly. That is, you know, your character moves around the world very fast, the run speed is very fast, the rotating speed is very fast. Uh, You know, to me, it's actually a bit more reminiscent of the motion of Wolfenstein than it was of Doom. After about 15 minutes of this, I became very, very motion sick, uh, to the point where I actually had to lay down on the couch for about an hour to calm my head and calm my stomach. Now, a few days later, I watched some Let's Plays to see the later parts of the game, um, and then I sat down to write the show. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm writing, and I'm doing my stuff, and my research, and, and all of that, but I really felt like something was missing. I hadn't really had my full experience. At that point, I was going to say, the game wasn't fun, it made me sick, blah, 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 it sucks, but then I remembered comments on Twitter. I think it was Ben Chandler, Ben 304 on Twitter, uh, who said he bought the game like three times because he loves it so much. So, you know, I felt like I was missing something and I, I decided to risk it again. I actually took some, uh, some generic brand gravel. And before it knocked me unconscious, I was able to get a few hours into the game without wanting to vomit. And I think I figured it out. Now this is a fun game. The voice acting isn't always great, the gameplay can be you know, simplistic, kind of blow stuff up, and it can be hard at times. But uh, the world this game exists in, and the story it tells, and the way it tells it is is really great and really novel. Not only that, but this game, as overlooked as it is, is really a template for story-heavy first-person shooters that later would become immensely popular. To me, this game is the prototype of games like Half-Life like Halo, like Deus Ex, and like Far Cry. You know, even if you don't think this game is important on its own, which I actually think that it is, I think it deserves a playthrough just to see how it inspired the stories of people like Gordon Freeman and of Master Chief. Uh, you know, this is an example of a game that came out just ever so slightly too late and was sadly overlooked because of it. You are listening to the Upper Black Podcast. All right, so back before uh, before the holidays, I talked about uh, giving away a copy of Broken Sword in the Broken Sword episode, uh, courtesy of Jenny. And uh, you guys have all have had your time, and now it is time to choose a winner. And the winner is Chris Olson, A.K.A. CGO Apps. That's Chris Olson, and uh, you know, I'm going to get in contact with Jenny, and she's going to fire you off uh, your copy of Broken Sword. So thanks to Jenny. Congratulations to uh, to Chris. I hope you enjoy the game. I know it's the director's cut. Don't believe trolls. It's fun. So with that aside, that's that's basically it. Thanks to everyone who wrote in all of that. A lot of emails this week. I'm really happy for that. Uh, made the show a little longer than I intended, but who the hell cares? So next weekend, I'll be holding my first quarterly group chat. Uh, I think it's going to be on Google Plus uh, with uh, the $5 and larger Patreon backers. Now, this is a big experiment, so I hope it goes well. And, uh, you know, whether it does or it doesn't, we'll retool and we'll we'll try it again, you know, but I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, that show should be both up on YouTube if I use uh, a Google Hangout and in the feed probably around next Sunday. A week after that, at least I hope it's going to be a week after that, um, we'll have the next Standard episode where I'm going to talk space trucking with Wing Commander Privateer. It'll be my second visit to the Wing Commander universe and uh, a game that I spent a ton of time with, so it uh, should be entertaining. As always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at MoyerMultimedia.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, If you find some value from the show, you know, consider joining all my current patrons and donating a buck or two per episode to help me with costs and to hit the next goal of monthly giveaways. So it won't just be, you know, every once in a while when someone kicks me in the butt and tells me to give something away, I'm going to give something away every month. Now uh, you can check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up some uh, game research videos when they don't make me want to vomit. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Stream us live as Stitcher Radio. Leave me some five-star reviews. I love them. So that is that. And we will see you next time with Privateer here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle
1: control terminated.
0: You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastrianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at
1: umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here?
0: Join!